We are in a study uh, through this series uh, that the church refers to as Epiphany. Epiphany is a season historically throughout the church that means revelation. And so our series during Epiphany, which leads us into Lent in the church calendar, is called Revealing Jesus. And so we've been seeing who Christ is, uh, maybe a little more truly, a little more fully, or maybe for the first time ever as we look at these biographical accounts that we refer to as the Gospels. This morning, we will see more clearly who Jesus is as He is revealed to us in a particular encounter. Before we read the Scripture in John chapter 3, I want to read a quote from Albert Einstein about Jesus. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth could be filled with such life. Stand with me, if you will, to hear these words that are filled with life and that breathe life into those who receive it. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, confused, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, if we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. They stayed there for a few days. The gospel of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. Have you ever had a conversation that changed your life. 
Have you ever had a conversation that changed your life? Or have you ever had a series of conversations that changed your life? My guess is you have. One of the conversations that I had 17 years ago that changed my life started pretty simply on one evening in St. Louis. I went over to see one of the kids that was in my youth group. I was a youth minister at a church on a youth staff there, and I went over to see one of my favorite students. His name was Brandon, and as I went over to Brandon's house to see him, he actually wasn't there, but his sister was there. And so I started to talk to her, and I kept talking to her. I'd heard about her before. I'd seen pictures of her before, but she was away at college usually, but she happened to be home this particular night, and so I started not to mind that Brandon wasn't home, and I started to continue to be enthralled with this conversation that I was having with Brandon's sister. There were various points in this conversation where we talked about things trivial and deep, and it seemed to go on and on and on, even into the wee hours of the morning, or at least late into the night. That conversation, of course, was with Emily, my wife, and just two years later, uh, that conversation led to the culmination of us saying, I do, right? And of course, there were many conversations between that initial substantive conversation that led to us saying vows, um, there were different conversations that happened between those two things, conversations that we used to refer to as DTRs, right? You know this? Conversations that defined the relationship, right? Well, Jesus had a lot of encounters and a lot of conversations that ended up being DTRs. He was consistently defining the relationship with what it meant to know Him and what it meant to follow God. We find Him here in a specific encounter in John chapter 3, enthralled in a pretty interesting conversation with a very interesting person in the wee hours of the night, the text tells us. What is this conversation about? What is Jesus trying to communicate to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. What Jesus is trying to communicate to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and what I want us to see this morning from John chapter 3 is, when we encounter Christ, He is calling us to new birth. When we encounter Christ, He is calling us to a new life. When we encounter Christ, He is calling us to what theologians refer to as regeneration. Knowing Christ means new life. Following Christ means regeneration. It's a radical change that Christ calls Nicodemus to, and it's a radical change that Christ calls all of us. In fact, anyone who would follow Him too. It's very easy for us to not want to change, right? It's very easy for us to be comfortable. It's even easy to be comfortable in our belief, it's easy to be comfortable in religion. So even if you're in a place here this morning where you have maybe ultimately decided or come to a place of understanding of saving faith, John 3 still has something to say to you. Because you see, belief is not 
a one-time instance. But we're called to believe in Christ, which brings about new life. And then we are called to continue to believe in Christ, which continues to usher in regeneration and new life within us. But if we're honest, that sounds nice, but that's not really what we want. Mark Buchanan, who's an author I like a lot, speaking about the concept of restoration, which I think we could also take what he says about restoration and apply it to regeneration, which is what Jesus is talking about in John 3, says this, a curious thing about restoration is that it doesn't need doing. Strictly speaking, life carries on without it. Restoration or regeneration is an invasion of sorts. It's fixing something that's broken but been broken so long, it's almost mended. Restoration meddles with what we've learned to handle, removes what we've learned to live with, bestows what we've learned to live without. We've built our lives around not being whole. And we're just kind of used to it. But John 3 is a declaration that says that's not the way it's supposed to be. Encountering Christ means encountering new life ultimately and continually. Encountering Christ means regeneration ultimately from disbelief to belief. But regeneration also means experiencing this new life through an encounter with Christ continually. Right? Journey really did have it right, didn't they? Don't stop believing. We believe and we keep on believing. But this text also has direct application if you're not in a place of belief. This is a very intriguing conversation because what we understand about Nicodemus, at least at this moment, is that he knew a lot about Christ. He had conceptions of Christ because everybody does. But he had not truly encountered or embraced Christ. And so Christ has some challenging and encouraging things to say to Nicodemus as he does to us this morning, whether you put yourself in a place of belief, whether you put yourself in a place of searching, or whether you put yourself in a place of great skepticism and unbelief. What I want us to see from John chapter 3, overarching, is encountering Christ means a new life. It means to be regenerated. More specifically, it means that we experience new life, we experience regeneration in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. Let's look more specifically at what it means to experience regeneration in our mind, in our hearts, and in our lives. And then in the end, we'll make, hopefully, some good application more specifically. So we're called to be regenerated in our mind. This is a call that Jesus gives Nicodemus and gives us here this morning to a new way of thinking. You know that Christianity does involve thinking, right? Even the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Unfortunately, there's been a long notion and modern evangelicalism is not doing much by way of working against this notion that to come to faith in Christ means you're committing intellectual suicide, right? We have so easily ignored the admonitions in Scripture, even specifically through the Apostle Peter, where he says, be ready to give a defense 
for that which you believe. It seems, understandably, to many people outside the church or outside Christianity, that Christians are just Christians because we were born into it. What if you were born in the Middle East? Would you be a Muslim? Are you a Christian simply because you were born in the West and specifically in America and maybe even more specifically in the Southeast and even more specifically you were born before the year 2000? You know, these stories are going to get less and less, by the way, kind of born into it as Christendom loses ground in the Western world. But there really is a challenge here to be renewed and regenerated in our minds. When we encounter Christ, we are called to a new way of thinking. Neil Postman, years ago in a book entitled Amusing Our to Death, which still has great relevance today, says this, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another religion altogether. And I would add, it's actually not that compelling. I know the church keeps thinking, we're, we're wrong in thinking that we've got to make Christianity an appeal on the lowest common denominator and make it easy and amusing. You know what happens when we do that? Non-believers look at it and they think, that's not that different. In fact, it's worse than the life I'm living. It's not compelling. It's not very thoughtful. But Jesus is challenging Nicodemus here in somewhat of a logical way. He's appealing in his mind. Even Nicodemus says, look, did you catch it? We know. And he's speaking here, presumably, of cognitive knowledge. We know these things to be true. You're a great teacher, and you're doing some pretty amazing signs. Nicodemus, by the way, was a Pharisee. He was a leader in what was referred to as the serious party. And Pharisees, in their time, were held in very high regard. And I would say, actually, for very good reason. Um, They really did have a deep knowledge of the Scriptures. They committed error in adding to the Scriptures. But still, all in all, they really were good people. And Nicodemus was a leader of some of the serious party of these good people. And he had deep knowledge. But presumably he did not have experiential knowledge. He did not know in the way that knowing is talked about in the Hebrew. Which is this holistic knowing. But he says, we know that you are a teacher. We know that you have done some amazing signs. But what Jesus wants him to know, it's not enough for you to know that I'm just a teacher. Because you see, I haven't just come to be a teacher. And in fact, if you see me simply as a good moral teacher, you're going to start to be real religious. And I didn't come to make people religious. I came to establish a relationship with people. This is where C.S. Lewis speaks famously about what people refer to as his trilemma. And it's at the beginning of your bulletin. It's a longer quote, and so I'd encourage you to look at it, if you don't mind, in the beginning of the reflections. And he talks about the way in which Jesus can be viewed. 
And he says it very excellently. And, and C.S. Lewis is fascinating on a number of different levels, not the least of them being that he was a former atheist and a university professor at Oxford. And he came to faith in Christ, and so his journey is pretty interesting. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. Like I think Nicodemus would have said that. All the Pharisees, in fact, would have said that. But I don't accept his claim to be God. You see, even Nicodemus, did you see in a sec, that you are one who is of God, Right? You're a great moral teacher who must be connected to God in some way. That is the one thing we must never say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not actually be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And John 3 is a fantastic example of this reality. Nicodemus comes in good-heartedness, Though under the guise of night, right, because it's a little controversial for Nicodemus and his leadership position to be asking these questions of Jesus. And Jesus says, I hear you, but I just need to clarify something for you. What you're saying is logical, and it's good that you're thinking. However, I've got to stretch you outside of human conventional logic, and I've got to tell you something about knowing me, which is actually kind of mysterious, Let me say it like this. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus, this is really funny, says, um, hmm, like, I've, (laughs) think about this, by the way. I've got to crawl back into my mother's womb? I mean, I don't know, like, there's no indication that he's not trying really hard to follow what Jesus is saying, but like, This is a hilarious cartoon, right? I've got to crawl back in. And at this point, one of the things that we're seeing about Nicodemus is he's too literal, right? He's too cognitive. He's too disconnected that he takes what Jesus says and he totally misses it. So much so that Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to understand. And he says it again, truly, truly. He says this three times throughout the passage. It's like, look, let me tell you the true truth. Truly, truly, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you see it. Truly, truly, or truly, truly, you can't see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, you can't enter the kingdom of God without being born again. Truly, truly, if you want to know me, you must be holistically regenerated which is something that is completely outside of yourself. And this completely blew Nicodemus' categories. Because his faith, or lack thereof, was highly religious, centered upon what he must do or not do. And let's think again 
to use this example literally. What did you have to do with your physical birth? Think about it. Like it was a great idea you had to be born. Right? What did you have to do with your physical birth? Absolutely nothing. Why would it be any different spiritually? Right? And this is where we get really confused. And before we move on to the heart, I want to clarify something with this idea of regeneration. Religious people think regeneration happens as we exhibit faith and repentance. Right? So, oh, I need to repent. So, I've got this revelation. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. Um, I'm a bad person. And or bad people need to do good things. I'm a bad person, therefore I need to do good things. It seems like the beginning of doing something good would be to repent of doing then start to do good things and experience this new life of belief. And when I have this realization, I have this conviction, I repent and then I exhibit faith, then I'm regenerated. The problem with that is, according to Scripture... Dead people don't realize things. Dead people don't even see the kingdom, much less enter the kingdom. We've got to be very, very cautious in misrepresenting the order of how things happen. You see, faith and repentance do not precede regeneration. Try to follow this with me. This is, this is conventional, modern, evangelical wisdom. This is by chance, you know, more than likely by default how we all grew up. If you grew up in the church at all. You grew up hearing and thinking most likely that your faith and your repentance bring renewal and new life. But what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and what the Bible says over and over is this. New life is brought to you, and as a result of that regeneration, you then exhibit faith and repentance. What can a dead person do? Nothing. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you're dead. You must be born again. And here's the biggest mystery. You can't make it happen. So he's renewing the way that Nicodemus thinks. Ultimately and continually. This is something, by the way, we have to continually be reminded of, right? But then he also is renewing Nicodemus' concept of the heart. So he he renews and, and regenerates this idea of the mind. But then there's also this regeneration that must take place in the heart. So if the mind is about thinking, the heart is about being, Jesus is wanting a radical change in our being. Because you see, being precedes doing. Grammatically, the indicative precedes and is more important than the imperative. And in fact, the imperative means nothing without the indicative. So we must know what is true before we know what we can do. Right? And so what this call here is, this call is to a renewal of our heart. This call is to be regenerated. This call more specifically is to move out of being religious. Like amen to that, right? Like who is tired of being religious? Me. 
Like being religious is just too hard. It just doesn't work. I'm just not that moral. And I don't like being that mean. And self-righteousness wears out and I wear out. And Jesus is saying, great. Because I didn't come to establish a religion. I came to establish a relationship. And at this point, it might be important for us to distinguish in some contrasting ways the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says, motivation is based on a grateful joy. Religion says that we work hard to be moral so that God will love us. The gospel says, because God loves us, true and deep morality and renewal takes place in our life. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from Him. The gospel says, I obey God to get God to delight and resemble Him. You see, Jesus is calling Nicodemus not only to a new way of thinking, but a new way of being. A transformation of his heart. Right? A circumcision of the heart. You see, one of the things that we see in the Old Testament, they had a lot of different failures, but one of their primary failures was Israel failed to be truly Israel. Oh yeah, they were Israel externally, they jumped through all the hoops. They crossed the T's and dotted the I's. They were very Christian in their associations. But there was no renewal in their inward being. And as a result of that, they were as far from God as anyone. And Jesus is challenging us. If we really want to know Him and encounter Him, there must be a renewal within our heart. Martin Luther says it like this. It's not about what you must do or not do, but concerning what you must become. The gospel aims not at the performance of new works, but first at being born anew. Listen to this. This is fantastic. It's not a different life, but a different birth. To truly know Jesus to begin with is actually not about a different life. It's about a different birth, which actually then leads to a different life, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we've got to understand this. Calvin said the same thing like this. By the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Because you see, you think you're bad? You're far worse than you could ever imagine. You see, we really actually cannot conceive we cannot bear our emo- we, we We don't have the EQ emotionally, right? To contemplate the depth of our brokenness. And the gospel announces that. You think you're bad, you're actually far worse than you've ever imagined. But it also announces you think you're loved, you're far more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you've ever dared to dream. You don't need renewal in part. You need renewal holistically. And catch this. And continually. 
And Jesus is explaining this to Nicodemus. One more theologian in the same way says, Rebirth means something more than an improvement in man. It means that man receives a new origin. And this is manifestly something he cannot give himself. So we must be regenerated in our mind. We must be regenerated in our heart. And then it really does lead to this regeneration within our life. It really, a, a new way of thinking and a new way of being does then, in order, lead to a new way of doing. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about the old man and the new man. To quote Paul, But that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and taught and were taught in Him. As the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, corrupt with its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Spurgeon said, the new creation is as much and entirely the work of God as the old creation. It does lead to a new way of doing. And the way of doing has to do with being childlike. Have we figured out yet that to grow in Christ means we actually grow downward? I mean, how would the Apostle Paul at the end of his life say say he was the chief of all sinners? What does Peter mean when he says we must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ? Does that mean we must attain to a higher level where... No one could beat us in Bible trivia. No, what growing in grace means, we grow in our understanding of our need for grace. You see, the bigger our sin is, the bigger the cross is. The smaller we are, the bigger God is. And that's what the new way of doing looks like. It's a growth downward. It's a childlike faith. It's a new creation where we don't reach this um, cultural, psychological self-actualization of this new ideal person, we just kind of begin every day and say, I'm not the Christ. I'm a mess. And that's how I'm going to do life today. We're called to be regenerated in our mind. We're called to be regenerated in our hearts. We're called to be regenerated in our actual life. But here's a question as we start to apply more specifically. How? In the world, will this happen? Well, verses 13 through 17 say it won't happen except through the Son of Man. Jesus self-proclaims there's only one way. And as unpopular as it is to speak about exclusivity, Jesus never apologizes for it. He explicitly and implicitly repeatedly says, I am the way. Which, as a side note, we don't have time to get into apologetics here. That's what all religions say. You, we understand this, right? Like, the Quran repeatedly, and I would even say, I mean, rightfully, if that's your religion, says this is the only way. And I know that's an unpopular notion today, but even if we want to take something that is hyper-pluralistic, and let's take this concept of the Baha'i faith, which would say all religions lead to God... That's an exclusive statement. Much like there is no absolute truth except that statement that I just said. 
right? These things are inherently self-contradictory to some degree. And the truth is, and the reality is, yes, unapologetically Christianity is exclusive. But I'll tell you this, man, it's wide open. Jesus is the only way. But come to him. There's nothing stopping you. The gates are wide open. There's no self-actualization. There's no doing. There's no moral being. There's no criteria that has to be met. You simply come as you are, which is the most distinctive thing about Christianity versus any other religion, by the way. All religions are exclusive, and all other religions outside of Christianity have a list of criteria that you have to meet in order to be accepted. So how's this going to happen? It's going to happen one way, through the person of Christ. But what do we do with Christ? We look to Him. Did you catch it? And this is, honestly, this is somewhat of a weird point in this text, where, Moses, where, where Jesus starts to talk about Moses. Did you catch this? There towards the end, and He's referring to when Moses in Numbers, in verse 14 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So how are we going to be regenerated? We're going to to claim and we're going to believe that Jesus is the only way. But then more specifically, how do we know Jesus is the only way? We look to Him just like the Old Testament. The, The Israelites in the Old Testament with Moses looked to a bronze pole with a snake on top. You see, the Israelites had been infested with poisonous snakes in the time of Moses, and they needed to experience healing and deliverance from that. And so God instructed Moses to make a bronze pole and to put a snake at the top of it. And he said, whoever looks at this will be saved. Interestingly enough, that snake represented evil. And he said, look at this and you'll experience healing. Well, guess what? Thousands of years later, there was another pole. It's called a cross. A snake was not on top of this pole, but a man was. Who in, him, in and of himself was not evil, but who in and of himself absolved evil. My evil, your evil. And the text tells us that looking to him is what brings salvation and healing. We experience regeneration through knowing that Christ is the only way, through looking to him, and then lastly... As we close with this application, we receive him. I mean, that's what the text says. For God so loved the world. Have you ever thought about this? That Christ was sent and died for you because God loves you. That's not why God loves you. Do you understand the distinction? This was new to me literally just a few years ago. I had always thought God loves me because Christ died for me, which is not untrue. But what is more true is this. Christ died for me because God loves me. God does not simply love you because Christ died for you. But because God loves you, He sent Christ. And that's why He died for you, because He loves you. What if we truly embrace this? What if we truly experience this regeneration and renewal in our own lives individually? What do you think that would mean to the world? Maybe people like Nicodemus would approach us. You see, Jesus is amazingly approachable to people that are searching and that are seeking. 
Do people that are searching and seeking ever approach you and ask you questions? Why? Why not? You see, because people are investigating. People want to know where to find new life. People want to experience truth and wholeness. And people are searching just like Nicodemus was. I love the story of Lee Strobel in closing, who was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, went to Missouri School of Journalism, which is the best in the country, went to Yale to get a graduate degree, was an atheist, uh, an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune, um, living in Chicago. His wife, through a series of events, uh, starts to understand the gospel and come to faith in Christ, which provoked then her husband, Lee Strobel, to investigate the claims of Christ and then write about it in things like the case for faith and the case for Christ. Did you know what he says at the back of his first book? Why he started to investigate? He said, I started to investigate the gospel just like I investigated all these other stories for one reason. Because of fundamental changes in my wife's character. What if there were fundamental changes in our character? that caused others to want to investigate, like Nicodemus investigated Jesus. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for your story. Thank you for the regeneration and the renewal that you speak about in here. We pray that you would bring it to us in the way that you brought it to Nicodemus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.